This week on Cool Story with Brie and Bridie, an incredible family saga by a Palestinian-British author, the way online creators have actually shaped the last decade of culture, we fight about gift-giving, and are we dumb? Australia's education problems. This is Cool Story with Brie and Bridie, where you hear our stories, the best stories, and the biggest story of the week. I'm Brie Lee. And I'm Bridie Jabal. Hello. I haven't seen you in a fortnight since we went and saw Chapel Run. Yes, because it was very funny to me that after the last time we recorded and I said I had that really intense family weekend and then was looking after the boys by myself and then uh, lo and behold, I became incredibly sick. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we missed that recording day and I missed the Walkleys. So I called oh. in sick to the podcast, which I know you're fine with and understood. Couldn't go to the Walkleys that night. Not which fine I- with, didn't understand. <laughs> we... Couldn't go to the Walkleys where I was meant to be sitting on the table with you and Rick, but dragged myself out of bed the next night for Chapel Road. (laughs) Still not quite 100%, but it was so worth it. I want to shout out to the people who stopped me in the crowd and said that they were there because of my recommendation. Yes! That was like, ah, got real warm and fuzzy. Yeah, yeah, that was so cool getting recognised, like when we were pushing our way to the stage. Mm. She was phenomenal. I said afterwards it was like watching... Lady Gaga. At the, I felt like I, the next time I see her, it's going to be in like a stadium or yeah, something. Definitely. Like, it's the most like convinced I've ever been that I've seen someone who is on a sh- steep ascent, like a star is ascending. Yeah, and has that the, star power. And yeah. I also loved about that night, we ran into other friends of mine and we went to kick-ons and when I left at 3.30, you were still there. <laughs> yeah. I love love. <laughs> Love getting Brie to really let her hair down. <laughs> you're a bad influence on me. <laughs> no, you're an excellent influence on me. I had a shower when I got home and then crawled into bed, checked my phone. Shouldn't have. And it was 4.30. Uh, I haven't done that in so long. Yeah, I hadn't done that in like a month. <laughs> <laughs> I was so much for monk mode, Brie. I know. But then I knew I, it. I knew it. I knew it. But then I had to go monk mode again after it because I really still was not well. <laughs> mm. Yeah, you lost your voice. I just that remember night, that. When yeah. we were at the, I lost my voice at the while we were out. Yes, because yeah. I was still sick. And then I went to Chapel Road and then I went to Kikons and then I could I literally couldn't speak. I remember we were sitting on the couch and we were all just like having a conversation and you were actually talking like this. And I said, guys, I think I think I should go home. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, I'll keep going. I said, well, because I was so sick. And in bed, I actually uh, ended up reading quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Read two books, one very thick and long, which was incredible, called The Parisian by Isabel Hamad, who is a Palestinian British writer. And this book came out a few years ago. And it is like exactly, exactly, exactly my subgenre, which is domestic life set with incredible world events happening in the background. <laughs> Begins during World War One. So no one has smartphones. Yeah, no one has smartphones. <laughs> also your <yeah>. preference. <laughs> Following my rules of like, of no smartphones, no emails, no text messages. Family reckoning with itself in the middle of incredible global upheaval, which I feel like I re- is a book I recommend every second week here. And it follows the, this character, Midhat Hamad, who is Palestinian from Nablus and he goes to Paris during World War I to study medicine and then moves back to Palestine and basically in the background, it follows his family life, it follows him for about 
15, 20 years as he like marries, has children, runs a shop, deals with his father and his obligations to his family. And meanwhile, also in the background is the British mandate coming into effect and the rise of Palestinian nationalism. Wow. So it was an amazing book because Isabel is an amazing writer and like the interior of her characters is so vivid, like their interior life. You you really feel like you're right there with them. And also I got to learn about a lot of stuff that I didn't quite know about in Palestinian history because I feel like I know a lot since World War II, but not actually much before that. I agree. I yeah. And it's all and I love learning about history in that way, like reading a novel and then you go off and read more mm. in depth about those historical events. But yeah, and it was just an incredible book. And it it had all these like amazing little details as well. Like something that really struck me was this line in the book, because he's very Midhat is very close with his grandmother. And she is in the book pretty much the whole way, like from when he is a child to when he's in his mid-40s and he's upset and going through a rough time, I think in his early 40s, and she's looking after him. And it says, he looked up at the bed at her and can only see her how he knew her when she, he was 20. And like the eye, and realised the idea in his head of how his grandma looks is not actually how she looks now and she's aged. And don't you find that so true of your own, I thought of my parents? Yeah. The way I picture my parents, and I haven't actually ever thought about this before until Isabel articulated it in this book, the way I think of my parents and the idea I have in my head of how they look is actually how they looked when I was a teenager. I feel like partially that, but also I've read a few accounts of people whose loved ones have become gradually ill with cancer and they talk about how when the diagnosis and when the treatments go on for so long but then unfortunately that person does pass away they really often hate the fact that their memory of this loved one is how they sort of looked and sounded and was just exhausted when they were really really ill at the end of their lives and then they like have to really put more effort into have photos around the place of how they were before the illness difficult to know how you would think or feel and what there is no right decision is there yeah and de- but definitely something i think a lot of people do myself included is you have this idea of what you yourself look like and often so you know how there's that funny saying that the music that you listen to approximately the age of like sort of 23 24 is just the music that you will prefer for the entire rest of your life i yeah. feel like a lot of people also in their heads think that they look 23 or 24, like for the rest of their life. Oh, just and like also early feel, to mid-20s. And yeah. feel. And, but all, the, yeah. a, a funny thing about that is, you know, obviously after pregnancy and having children and ageing, your body changes. Yeah. And, but when you get pregnant and have a baby, you change it very rapidly. Yes. Like it's not oh, the slow yeah, ageing yeah. progress. Like you change it very rapidly. And my body is different to what it was before kids. Not hugely different, but it is different. And I still see photos where I'm surprised by how I look <laughs> because in my head... I still have the body that I had before I had kids. And I'm not disgusted or disappointed when I see photos, but I'm always just like, oh, that's right. <laughs> I don't look. I, I created I two human beings. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't look 27 pre children anymore <laughs> in a bikini. <laughs> I also have this thing where sometimes when it'll be just some event, like lately, obviously, it's been weddings or. or or sometimes Christmases or whatever, when the peers that I went to university with and I see a photo of them and I'm like, they look old now. Oh, like, my God, exactly. Oh, my God. <laughs> exactly, yes. People I went to high school with, I see photos of them. You're so and they old. look great. They yeah. look, but I'm just like, 
you look like our parents. Yeah. I'm glad I don't look that way. <laughs> <laughs> also, I should say here, like, I think it's probably easy for me to say this as someone about to turn 32, but I have no fear of looking my age. And when I, it's so weird, I find if I say like, oh, that person looks that age, there's, to my mind, that's not an insult. I no, no, other people it's not a it bad way, thing. It's no. just you're surprised by how yeah. you look yourself <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that you're aging. Yeah. I remember so my, funny. Uh, I remember my, my dad saying um, once, it was so funny, his his father's nickname was Cheeky. And I remember dad saying that, like, he got, he was in the bathroom and looked in the mirror to shave and he was like, Cheeky? <laughs> <laughs> so I think that it's yeah. a thing that we all, all yeah. experience. The other book I read was... Okay, wait, hang on, sorry. I had a question about the... The Parisian. Book. Yes, yeah. yeah, the Parisian. Is that a new release? No, 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 it came out. She's actually got a newer book, which I want to read. It came out in uh, 2019, I think, but I picked it because I knew that it was a family saga (laughs) and I wanted to read, I wanted to read a book by a Palestinian writer, a novel by a Palestinian writer and then, and found like the family saga with no text messages. Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) That's like the perfect overlap of your Venn diagram. Constantly wanting family saga with no text messages. These days, like wanting to read something by a Palestinian author. And she's a student of Zadie. Oh, wow. Yeah, and she's a student of Zadie and also this book is so accomplished and, like, the plot, it's very wide-ranging because it covers so many years and obviously these significant events are happening in the background and the characters are part of them sometimes and at other times not. It also deals really interestingly with class in that society, you know, in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and one of the things that comes up, and it doesn't feel shoehorned in, like it feels very natural the characters are talking about this, is that the middle class women take off the veil because they see it as oppressive and they want to be, you know, equal rights with men and all that, obviously. You know, they're being feminists. But the lower class women want the veil because they see it as part of the communal identity. Mm. And, you know, communal identity is obviously so important there at the time. And just little things like that I found so interesting to read. And, yeah, she's a student of Zadie and then I looked her up because this book is such an achievement. She was like freaking 27 when it came out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that depressed me slightly. So I think she's still, yeah. But you're 27, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. She's 27, yeah, like me. Like me. <laughs> so she'd still be younger than me now and her second book has come out, which I will also read. But, yes, yeah, very, like, beautiful, beautiful writer and very vivid portrait. That reminds me, what you've just described is so reminiscent of what I loved about Leila Slimani's book, The Country of Others, which was Morocco during the occupation. And that, like, especially that idea of whether or not women wanted to or had the choice to veil or not. And like, but it's kind of happening in the background. Like it's a very natural thing that the characters are talking about. It doesn't feel like a political statement put in there. Also, it reminded me a bit of the Makioka sisters, which I talked about previously as well. So what was the other one you read? Sorry. Good Material by Dolly Alderton, which I almost didn't pick it up because I I love her work broadly. I especially Mm. love listening to her do interviews. But her last novel, Ghosts, I thought it was a very angry book. Oh. Yeah. and um, That's quite a charge. Yeah. I thought it was very angry about basically your friends getting into your early 30s and how your life's you know, you and your friends have such similar lives through your 20s, basically. And then, you know, you hit 30 and that's really when stuff 
shit gets real. <laughs> yeah, and things start to shift. And, you know, one of the biggest things, obviously, is having children. One of the biggest changes that can happen in your friendship is your friends having children. But also just careers take off in different ways. People are doing different jobs. They have more family obligations, you know, looking after older parents as well. They partner up and then they're, you know, their time is taken up by the partner. And I felt that Ghost was very angry about a lot of that stuff, which was interesting to me because... There's a quote, and I don't know who says it, but it stuck with me, that your first novel is always revenge, <laughs> which I don't think is in your book. Yeah. But once I read... Because my first book was revenge. Yeah, yeah. well, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> True. Got it out of my system. <laughs> but since I've read that quote, I have noticed a lot of first novels are like just laying oh, everything yeah. on the table that you're angry about. And it wasn't a bad book. It didn't mean that I didn't like it, but I didn't love it. And then when I saw that in her second novel it was from the perspective of a guy, you know, we all know that I, I'm for the boys and I love, I love men. But I, but I just I, need to explain to <laughs> listeners who maybe have not heard every single episode that we constantly joke that Bridie is a bad feminist because by some meteoric fluke she's just been surrounded by really great men her entire life yeah. and she doesn't realise <laughs> what the rest of the population is slogging it through. So it's made me a bad feminist, yes. <laughs> I freely admit it. Even though I'm for the boys, I thought, oh, I don't really need to read, like, Dolly Alderton being a guy. Like, I'm really interested in her perspective as a woman and, like, oh, yeah, I could, yeah. her commentary on, like, relationships and, like, yeah. ageing as a woman, all that I love. And so I thought, oh, I'm not that interested. But then two of my friends, Monica and Candace, raved about the book. And because I was sick, I thought, oh, yeah, I'll pick it up. And it was great. It was so great. It was such a funny book. I found it very moving as well and deep. And she is – this might sound like a pat of observation, but I genuinely find her very Nora Ephron-esque in her eye for detail in how we relate to each other and, like, zoning in on the way that we – talk to each like millennials in particular, talk to each other, how they experience things and, you know, basically what our culture, like millennial culture is like. And so, yeah, I loved it. And um, I kind of, there's meant to be like this twist at the end, but I don't know, I didn't really think of it as a big twist. Like I could, I could see it coming, but it was very, very well done. Mm. And a great, like, you know, read in a day on your sick bed or a great little like treat on the weekend when you just want a bit of escapism. This is not anti-intellectual, but <laughs> I haven't read the book, but the image, there's a photograph of what she wore to one of, I think her main book launch that I have thought about probably once a week since I saw it. The orange dress. So glamorous. Just the most fucking iconic shot of, yeah, just. Ooh. She is a woman who is having so much fun. Yes. At the moment. Yeah. That when I saw that photo, I was like, not to be patronising, but, um, but you know, this is Dolly really coming into herself, being so yeah. comfortable with who she is and doing exactly what she wants to do, which is like dress in the most glam, over-the-top bright not, red dress yeah. for her book launch, which uh -huh. you usually wouldn't do for a book launch. Yes, yeah. And, and so she's it's at, so cool. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. And, and she's fun. at that hotel, what is it, like the 22 or something? The, yeah, anyway. But that, I think as well, you're right. It's not just the dress. I didn't just like screenshot that image and then look at it like a fucking creep because of the dress or how she looks. It's because what I see her doing these days is like such, I don't know, it's so baller. Like yeah. I just feel like she's in she's... charge of her life in a way that is exhilarating to behold. And enjoying it so much. Yeah. What have you been reading? Okay, so I have been reading, it's called Extremely Online, 
by Taylor Lorenz, and the sort of subtitle is The Untold Story of Fame, Influence, and Power on the Internet. What I find really interesting about Lorenz's work is that she is a tech reporter, but from the user side of tech. So instead of being your typical tech reporter who's sort of like in Silicon Valley talking to the people who make the apps and the uh, who are behind the algorithms, she has always focused her work on the creators and the users who often define and shape platforms and certainly the user and creator end of tech who shape how we think about and understand different companies and platforms. And Lorenz is now a tech reporter for the Washington Post, but is very much, she's not anti-establishment media, but she's uninterested in the kind of presumed tick of approval that comes with establishment media. media. She's always been very, very proudly freelance and just sort of independent writing her own stuff, reporting on her own stuff forever. But she recently took the job at the Washington Post um, and now she's had this book come out. What I found really interesting about reading this was that as someone who has always sort of been online, it's amazing how much you forget how the digital landscape has changed over the last decade because you're just in amongst it through every tiny tweak and iteration. And I found it really fascinating and gratifying to actually sort of pause, step out of that flowing river for a moment and then look back at the various like phases that things went through instead of just that sort of frog in boiling pot analogy where you forget who the key power players were at any given time and the sort of implosions on certain platforms and explosions on others. Um, And I just want to read a couple of bits from, so this is the introduction. This is the very, very beginning. This is a book about a revolution. Like most revolutions, this one has done less than some of its vanguard promised and more than anyone predicted. It has radically upended how we've understood and interacted with our world. It has demolished traditional barriers and empowered millions who were previously marginalized. It has created vast new sectors of our economy while devastating legacy institutions. It is often dismissed by traditionalists as a vacant fad, when in fact it is the greatest and most disruptive change in modern capitalism. That is how this book begins. And it just... There are some places where I would have liked a bit more depth and a bit more sort of rigorous analysis, but I don't think that that's what this particular book is trying to do. This particular book is like a a kind of map and an overview about how we got to where we are now, and it is fascinating. And what is the overarching takeaway about where we are now? I don't know if this is the overarching takeaway, but something I didn't appreciate until I read this was the degree to which creators have created the platforms themselves and the algorithms as much as they have created any individual photos and videos and writings. That's so interesting. So used Instagram in a way which Instagram's creators did not think that they were going to do. Exactly. And because that's what I think is the strength of Lorenz's perspective is that because she doesn't have these shitty hangups about who involved is the act, quote unquote actual genius because she's not sort of desperate for appearing to be a quote unquote valid tech reporter who talks to the you know software engineers and like Silicon Valley dude bros because she's so interested in the user and creator perspective. I have never read that so well articulated how you know YouTubers would work with each other and then 
and then like YouTube as a platform would like try to either shut that down or try to respond to that. And then what it, the other sort of connected thing was just how much so many creators built their entire professional empires on particular platforms only for those platforms to change the way the software works or the way the algorithm works and for those people to have their entire professions just the rug pulled out from under their feet and how the platforms that have done really well have been led by the creators and the platforms that have struggled are the ones that sort of tried to sort of forge ahead regardless of the way people were actually creating and using on them. But also, sorry, the final thing is forever battle of governments deciding or indeed people and users deciding how much a platform is responsible for awful content. And and what should be moderated. Yes. And what's moderation and what's freedom of speech. Yes. Yeah. Because it's true. Which I think is a more difficult debate in America than it is in Australia. Yeah. And that's not, that debate is not sort of the focus of this because that would just be that is deserving of its own book yeah, and there are a whole other book but I also for example I still am thrilled to have never downloaded TikTok on my phone and hope I never do but I also never had Vine or like just missed the Vine kind of tr- like why haven't you downloaded TikTok because it's owned by the totalitarian oh you don't want the ccp i love that that's the reason why you haven't downloaded it do you know why i don't use it because i know myself yeah and you'll and i know that like you know i don't want to smoke one cigarette i want to smoke an entire pack of cigarettes i'm not going to run one kilometer i'm going to run 10 kilometers and if i download tiktok I know I will be addicted. Yeah. You're not just going to come to Chapel Road and go home. We'll be out till four. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Even when I'm sick. Exactly. Yeah. Like yeah. I'm either going to do something not at all or I'm going to do it 150. And I'm so glad that TikTok came out when I was in my 30s and knew myself well enough for that. Because <laughs> if it came out when I was 25, I would absolutely be on it 16 hours a day. Yeah. No, for me, it's just all about the fact that if you're like a government employee, you're not allowed to have it on your phone. Yeah, so you don't want – see, I give my info to anyone. <laughs> I'm like, you can have it. Yeah. I, yeah. <laughs> um, but this book sounds truly interesting. I yeah. also love thinking about, in, you know, the way that Instagram or Twitter, we use it now and and way it is uh, enmeshed in a lot of our culture, how the creators of it didn't set out. Like, you know, when they first set up Twitter, they're not thinking oh, we're going to get, like, all journalists on this. Yeah. And, you know, the, the people who are, like, kind of um, – the dictators of our culture or people yes. who, have a, who have a lot to do with culture are going to be the ones who use this. They didn't envision it, but that's how it ends up. And same with Instagram. I also really like thinking about and reading about in those cultural changes how much is strategy and how much is like stumbling through and it happens. Because I think for a lot of the early Instagram influencers, their strategy wasn't to become Instagram influencers, but it's kind of what they worked into? Yes, I agree with that. The other thing I was just remembering while you're talking to look back at the contents page, something that is interesting to reflect on now is how one of the first huge arenas for online influence to begin that we can see a bit more clearly now that we have distance from it is the mummy blogging revolution. Lorenz sort of points to how much just blatant misogyny there was and is 
in demonizing those women for sharing things about their personal lives. And obviously there is the whole consideration of to what degree like children should be children's lives and photographs should be like content content made into content. Yes. But there is also a huge and important conversation about how those women like sort of forged the beginning of this revolution that Lorenz then sort of And how radical tracks. it was in its short time ago and how yeah. normalised it is now, now yes. to speak about the aspects of mothering that they were writing about. Yeah, and also then how much when things like affiliate links or um, even just some of them who had amassed thousands and hundreds and thousands of readers on these blogs when they started doing any advertising at all the degree to which they were fucking slammed whereas like the kind of appetite not even appetite the how much it's normalized now that even sort of micro influencers will just like put affiliate links on things even if they're not they don't consider influencing to be their job I just find all of this stuff fascinating did she go into it all the impact of the end of google reader on the bloggers as well. No, I don't think Google. See, that's an example of the depth. That yeah, how far not, you go. Because yeah, Google yeah. Reader, I, which I loved and used, was basically, you know, your own personal RSS feed. And that's how I read blogs and knew that they were updated. And when it finished, like when they closed down Google Reader, I just stopped reading like 15 blogs almost immediately. Wow. And I've always wanted more about the impact on blogging that just that little change yeah. had. The one thing, thing that I also appreciated about this was how uh, it goes right up till like 2022, 2023. By the time you get to the final chapter and the epilogue, like this stuff just happened. It feels very, I feel very sort of equipped or something to kind of have a better understanding of the digital landscape now. And you're working out what you're going to be, what which platform you're going to become an influencer on next. <laughs> I'm already an influencer on my newsletter. Thank you very much, Bridie. <laughs> News and review. Subscribe now. <laughs> like it's going to like it's subscribe. <laughs> when we were uh, talking about, you know, what everyone's talking about this week, like we like to do the Zeitgeisty article, and when we were messaging back and forth last night, I was at the pub with two people who listen to the podcast, and I said, sorry, I'm just working out with Brie, like what are we – I should be at home. Usually I'm at home on Wednesday night texting Brie. But a series of events, <laughs> I was at the pub. Yeah. I was at the, So my, much for monk mode. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was at my second of three locations that I had not planned to be at. And my and they, they listened and they, they said, oh, you should talk about gifts, like what, what are you giving for Christmas? And I said, yeah, but the episode, it's December. Like, everyone's already done all that. And they looked at me and they're like, are you serious right now, Friday? Fucking no, mutant. <laughs> nobody has bought their Christmas gifts. I like to have bought everything by the end of November. But they were keen, so we are going to talk about gifts and, well, approaches to gift giving, I think, not just selling <laughs> what we're buying. Well, because what's your approach I or thoughts? I fucking hate gift culture. I think that it is. It has like become way more rampant than it used to be. I don't care about receiving gifts. I loathe the feeling of obligation that I must give gifts. My brother forgot my birthday once. I forgot his birthday twice. Neither of us care. <laughs> we don't get, my husband and I don't get anniversary presents from each other. My family now are at this beautiful state where we just have a kind of secret Santa. So each one of us just buys one gift for each one of the others so that we can sort of have something to do on Christmas morning. But I think if you think that your love language is gifts, then 
you are a sad person. I don't believe in love languages. Like I think the whole love language thing is bullshit. But I think you're a sad person. (laughs) (laughs) Because of the lack of gifting in my life or is there something else you want to talk to me about? I I love that your family is so much smaller than mine and you're doing the secret Santa thing and my family is so big. Like it's actually getting very unwieldy. Yeah. So many um, brothers and sisters, partners and nephews. Yeah, well, we're in each other's beds. (laughs) We still bed share. Go sleeping, yeah. <laughs> we do. Like if, um, well, less we, with our, now that some of us have partners, but yeah, we all bed share when we have to. Like my my sisters share beds with my sons, <laughs> which is sweet. Yeah. Uh, so yes, that, there's the answer to your question. We yeah, sleep in each other's beds. I need still. an answer to the question of whether you think I'm sad because of the lack of gifting in my life or because of other bigger reasons. Oh, no, to no, talk no, about. no, no, no other bigger reason, <laughs> just your approach to gifts. No, I appreciate people not being into them. Like, I totally appreciate that stance and not being into them. If you're not into them, you're not into them. Me, I love them. (laughs) Love presents. Love getting presents. I love presents to myself. I love ordering online and then my little present comes to my door. Yeah, okay, I can fuck with that. And also, you're the one that taught me the word shoppies and, boy, did I have some shoppies recently. But this is kind of related to my point, which is that, mmm, I have received so many gifts that I do not would not have spent money on and I just find it wasteful when Well, we're not extravagant <sighs> and I usually always like gifts. It's not like we're all buying each other extravagant things, but I love getting them. But I think if you're a person who loves getting gifts, you're also a person who loves giving gifts. Mm-hmm. And I love the thought that goes into it. I love surprising someone. I love hearing them say something a few months ago. Or like even a year ago and storing it away in my head and then surprising them with like how well I know them or that or showing it's like a way of showing that I it's not the only way of showing someone that you notice them. But for me it's a way that I love showing someone that I notice them. And you know, like little things like my friend's partner was messaging about this incredible Christmas gift that she's getting her girlfriend, which is absolutely putting Maddie Q to shame this Christmas. <laughs> And she's like, do you think I should – she was just asking friends advice, which I think is a thoughtful thing to do, like go to friends and chat about it. Like what would they like? What would they appreciate getting? And she said, which colour do you think that I should get this or black? And I said, no, not not black because I remember when she bought this. She regretted getting um, – 18 months ago, she regretted getting black. And I just think it's like a nice way of conveying or when you, I listen, when you talk to me and I know you so well and I've got you – maybe no one in your life knows you well, Bree. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get you a gift. I, I no, kind I of know what I'm getting you for Christmas. But, um, oh, fuck. You didn't, are we getting each other? <laughs> fuck. Friday. But, but, but this is. But you this, already bought it. You said you already bought all your gifts. But this, fuck, I hate everything about this. But this is also the thing that, like, if if I got you something and you didn't get me something, I wouldn't mind. I, what? I'm not offended. Like Reciprocity uh, is, like, supposed to underpin gift giving. Are you telling me I misunderstand this as, like, a social function? Yeah, maybe. I think, like, yeah, you're making it very transactional. You get me something, so I get you something. Whereas whereas I'm a good person. (laughs) So when I'm giving gifts, I'm just, I'm not doing it with expectation of something in return. I'm just showing someone, like, you know, I saw this and thought of you. I think of you when I'm not with you. Like, I love you. I listen to you. Like, 
Are you telling me that if we make this podcast for a decade and every single year you get me a birthday and a Christmas gift and I never get you anything, that there would not be like a resentment gradually building up for the lack of reciprocity? No, I don't think so. But also I wouldn't get you a gift every birthday and Christmas because I also just buy people gifts. I don't like with my friends, I don't buy, oh, some I buy every birthday, but most I don't buy every birthday. I just buy when I see something that I know they're going to like. My partner. So like, just yeah. As, as you were saying this, when you were like, maybe nobody knows you. I was like, well, at least my husband does, and he <laughs> knows not to buy me a present. <laughs> but we buy each other things that we think each other might like. But then we, it'll just be at any time of the year. We'll be like, oh, I, I bought you this gift for your birthday that's in six months, but do you just want it now? <laughs> that's different. That's nice. No, but that's just gifting. Well, I just mainly do it around Christmas and birthdays and I like there's some gifts that I'm so proud of oh number one Taylor Swift tickets for my sister (laughs) that was one of my best gifts and she was like screaming the street down when I when I got them for it and for my brother's 30th uh my friend was in Japan and in Japan there's a knife shop in Kyoto that's been open for 600 years oh that's so cool and they engrave your name on it and um, and the knives are amazing, Japanese knives. And I knew she was going to be in Japan. And Seamus's 30th was in – he wasn't 29 yet. He was 28. And my friend was going to Japan. And I said, can you buy this knife and get his name engraved on it? And I held on to it for his 29th birthday. And then on his 30th, like, he was so shocked and so surprised and loved it so much. And also is obviously using it every day. Mm. I love doing that. And everyone in my family did think I was a psycho for buying his pre- 30th birthday present when he was 28. That's so <laughs> thoughtful and lovely. Yeah, see? So that's what that's how I think of gift giving and, re- and receiving. <laughs> and okay. on, my, on my 30th, my I had a baby. I'd, how old? I think my baby was – my first baby was six months old. And my brother and my husband got my friend to come around to the house and take photos of them with my baby. And in each photo, they were holding up a different sign and it's spelt out in three different photos, we love you. Oh. Yeah. So, and that didn't cost anything. Like my friend did it for free. But how thoughtful is that? And like lovely. And I've got those photos on my dresser in my bedroom. And I really appreciate the way you do family photos. That's really lodged in my mind. Well, yeah, that kind of happened by accident, yeah. us doing family photos, because I got a, um, oh, the yeah, we get Christmas photos every yeah. year, which is. Listening yeah. to you talk about gifts, I think I have identified that it's not automatically necessarily gifts that I hate. It's this like sort of rabid consumerism that I feel ramping up in November and December towards Christmas. Yeah, and I don't love the advertising. I love the shopping. I love going to the shops. (laughs) Love some shopping. shopping. (laughs) I love shopping. Well, yeah, I just love shopping. So that's Mm. another reason to love gift giving. But I agree. I don't like – I don't feel like there's big expectation in my family – my immediate family or my broader family either for extravagant But it's not even about extravagance. There's a specific moment that I loathe where it's like, what am I going to get this person trying to find something good for them? You can't find something because you know when you've thought of something that someone's going to love. You can't find like a gift that they will actually use or really be delighted and surprised by. But because of this expectation that there is a gift, you buy something, you spend money on like a mostly plastic or whatever thing that doesn't need to exist because of this tradition that is like so founded on consumption 
Maybe you get shift gifts for other people, but I don't. <laughs> right, because I don't spend the entire year or thinking indeed two it. years yeah. Yeah, <laughs> thinking, about it. thinking about it. <laughs> no, I think, no, that's totally a valid point. Yeah, like just buying crap for the sake of buying crap. And the waste I don't love and the waste. Christmas yeah. just like, gets me down. And for my kids, I actually think this is ultra middle class of me. I'm not one of those parents who buys tons and tons of presents for them. Like you only need to get them like two presents each and they're absolutely thrilled by it. So I don't feel like it's too the I guess not the overconsumption, but the reason my boys end up with so much stuff is because they've got such a big family. Yeah. And so like everyone's like, you know, sending if everyone gets nice. them one thing, they got twenty yeah. things. Yeah. yeah. And my dad doesn't buy them presents for mm-hmm. their birthday or Christmas because he knows how insane that grandmothers are. <laughs> and he's just like, mm-hmm. I don't he, he goes, they don't need anything. And I know that, like, their nonna and their granny are looking after them and, like, it's all fine. And we, it's totally fine. Totally accept that. I will yeah. cop to when I, I have clear memories for at least a decade of being a child where I would have, like, 30 presents under the tree from my parents and grandparents and fucking loved it. Oh, this is me at 35. <laughs> <laughs> now nah, I don't get and that you many. know what they all are because yeah. you bought them. <laughs> Sometimes if I want something specific, I ask, but usually my presents are a surprise as well. And mm. Maddie nails it. Although last Christmas was so funny because, as I said, I don't have an expectation for extravagant things or whatever. Mm. And last Christmas, I surprised Maddie with an Apple Watch, which I deeply regret because he's become so addicted to it. And I thought that he was m- way too cool to get addicted to the Apple Watch, but it rules his life with standing up, sitting down, going for a walk. Oh my God. Another thing that I don't engage with, I will not get an Apple Watch because I know myself and I know how addicted I will get to it. So I got him an Apple Watch and he, he was so surprised and so thrilled. And he hadn't, like he stopped his gym membership and was doing all home workouts. So that's why I got it for him because, mm. you know, you're noticing things about something. He was so, he was so happy. What did he get me? A portable picnic table. (laughs) And I was like, I laughed when I opened it and I was like, what is this? And I, yeah, and I love going to the beach and I love going to the beach and I'm very fair and also I've got little kids. So I have a beach set up now. So I have like the Coco Cabana. I have beach chairs because I like to be at the beach for hours, but you've got to be sun safe. And I've got to have my little chair. So I bought these little chairs. I had my, like, shelter and, like, and I loved it. Like, every week, like, you know, I love to go to the beach on a Saturday morning, set it all up and sit on my chair, read my book. And then so Matt was thoughtful and watching me and was like, I, and when I laughed and I was like, I can't believe you got me this. And I was like, this is such a bad. And he's like, but you love your beach setup, <laughs> Which was true. So it wasn't a bad gift in the, like, I don't think about you. I don't notice you. Like, I'm yeah. just getting any old crap. He had thought about it, but he had arrived at, like, way too much of a domestic, unglamorous game. <laughs> I would also just like to say for the record that I very much enjoy cooking meals for the people I care about. And it's not that I don't want to do things for people yeah, I well, care about. <laughs> you don't have to explain to me. You do heaps for people you care about. I'm not sad. You're not. You're, you're not. I'm, you're not. Sorry that I... No, you're not sorry. For, No, I'm not sorry. You no, are a Grinch. No, it's because I'm not. I'm uh-uh. sad. <laughs> Okay, so I walked into the newsagent near where I live and the cover of the Daily Telly, which, you know, not the gold standard of journalism, but it's education shocker. We're dumb, they're dumber. 
Aussies fall behind, but the rest of the world is no better because the global PISA results have just been released. We're dumb, they're dumber. Yeah. I did not see that front page because I read everything online. Yeah. We're dumb, they're dumber. And it's huge. Well, Look at this. That's fucking huge. That's It's more than half of the page with that headline. They're not exactly like, well, I was going to say they're not exactly wrong. No, I do think it's wrong to call, call us dumb or call people dumb. But that was their framing around the PISA results. The PISA results are this, this measurement that's been happening since the year 2000, global measurement, where they test the reading, writing, mathematical and scientific skills of 15-year-olds and how they apply it to the real world. Yep. And like specifically what makes this data valuable is that it's from OECD nations whose kind of comparative you know, student achievements should be tracked against each other's. Um, So I'm just reading from the first par of that particular news article. The maths and reading skills of 15-year-olds have drastically declined over the past two decades. The average Australian year 10 student is falling at least a year behind. And then this article says, despite school funding tripling to 72 billion. But what I also want to draw everyone's attention to is some really great reporting in the Saturday paper from a couple of weeks ago, where it looked at reports that have come out to show that private schools overfunded by billions, public schools underfunded by multiple billions. If you want a sort of good kind of overview that is like sort of snappy and to the point of this, I highly recommend listening to the episode of the 7am podcast um, with Mike Saccombe. And I also recommend that podcast for sure. We'll put this all in the show notes. Yeah. Guardian also did a full story episode in July, which was so interesting and also went into how funding works, why it's so unequal in Australia and, and why it's bad. And also it went also a bit deeper into the drift yeah. from public to private schools, which is also something that really like needs to be analysed and explained. So we will link to both of those podcasts because if we were going to do, like we have to do the whole hour on this topic, yeah. it's so broad. At least. And yeah. like obviously I'm on my high horse about this stuff because it's so much about what I researched and found out when I was writing Who Gets to Be Smart and then touring around the country hearing from parents about that. The final Another thing, thing you can buy. <laughs> Bree's last book. (laughs) thing about Mike Saccombe's article in the Saturday paper that I wanted to mention as well that I really appreciated was that, and I'm just reading verbatim here, that Australian politicians are privately educated at a rate almost double that of the general populace and that the rate that like sort of the general populace in Australia are at private schools is about 35%, which I know from my research is a, com- that's a complete outlier. No other sort of OECD nations do that crazy split the way we do. Well, almost no other OECD nations publicly fund private schools. Exactly. In most other nations, it's like if you want a private school, then parents have to pay those fees yeah. and they will fund the public schools. But in Australia... We have these elite schools and like such a broad range of private and non-government schools as well. And those at the top, you know, have fees of like $70,000 a year and still get government funding. Yep. Some, one of them has a little castle. Yeah. Many of them do, in fact. And what Sacombe writes about is that not only are Australian politicians, so these are federal politicians, like twice as likely to have been educated at a private school, but that's even more profound when you consider that they were at school several decades ago when only about 20% of children attended private schools. So the result is this kind of chicken and egg where you're talking about most federal politicians being from a certain sort of class of Australia that is even more profound when you look at their sort of trajectory over the last sort of five decades and the trajectory of school funding over the last five decades. And then there being sort of no 
political willpower or courage to deal with the worsening divide between public and private schools and this drift, which is not just my opinion, like the stats undeniably show, every year more children with disadvantage in of any type are left behind in pockets of concentrated disadvantage at chronically underfunded public schools. And great point that I thought Mike Sukon made very eloquently was when he said politicians overwhelmingly coming from private schools is both a symptom and a cause of the problem. So it's a symptom because of the drift and that if you do go to these schools, you are going to have better educational outcomes. Yeah. And also, obviously, you're going, it's also about socialising with yep. other influential people and people who come from power, powerful families. But it's also a cause because then they get into positions of political power and they don't want to fund public schools properly. Yep. And the final, like, nail in the coffin, basically, is that almost – so the article admits it's almost impossible to get reliable data, but very, very few politicians choose to send their children to public schools. And so not only did they – not go themselves, but they have never, even as a parent, let alone as a child, seen the reality of public school life and education system. And this is beside the funding point, but, you know, when we're talking about funding, basically what you're talking about is segregating by class, which is terrible for the most disadvantaged. Like if you're a middle-class person and you send your kid to a public school, they're going to be fine. Like it doesn't matter which school you send them to, their educational outcomes are going to be fine. So the people who suffer are the most disadvantaged kids. And what blew my mind when I came to Sydney about the public school system in Sydney that I hadn't realised growing up in the country, two things. One, I can't believe that we have single-sex public high schools. Still we? Heaps. I'm zoned for a boys' high school. That's public? Yeah. That's so fucking weird. Isn't it? And But they're, they're trying to fix it because they've made a rule, which is a great rule, especially if you've got boys and you know I have beautiful little kooky boys who absolutely can't go into a boys only <laughs> environment it yeah. is not going to be a good time for them I'm going to feed them into that yeah, meat grinder they've, they've changed it so that if you want to send them to co-ed public high school then you can go into it like they you're allowed from your catchment to go into another catchment which is good the other thing that blew my mind about public school high school in Sydney was selective schools. Yeah. I didn't know that they existed and that is like yet another example of segregation when you're taking out the in inverted commas brightest and smartest students and putting them in their own school by themselves away from I get the mainstream public school system who suffers from that? Mm. The kids again at the bottom and I can't believe that we do that in the public yep. system as well like that segregation in the public system too. Yeah, and it means that a lot of kids who are from comfortable middle class families but get sent to public schools can end up in Exactly. the special like well, what's what's the word selective. selective thank you selective schools which just further exacerbates it. It's and the word segregation is correct. By OECD reporting standards, Australia has the fourth most segregated by class schooling system of any nation. And it also ends up bad for – like it's most bad for our disadvantaged students, but it's it's bad for the – Everyone. Ed, everyone. Yeah. Yep. The advantaged students as well. Yeah. 98% sure that one of my kids is definitely not going to selective school. <laughs> the other one, meh, maybe. We'll find out. I'll let, I'll let you know in eight years. <laughs> <laughs> what have you got this week? My – calendar is so insanely packed. It is. I keep asking you to do things and you keep saying no. Yes. And it, and I said, when I said I was going monk mode, I said to you, now that mum's birthday weekend is over, like my calendar is actually pretty clear. It's looking good. Oh no. 
I have something every single night, you know, end of year catch-ups, but also, you know, work stuff, catch-ups to do with work and evening Christmas events. And also tons of kid-related Christmas oh. events. So that's what's eating up a lot, which is fun. It's like Christmas carols with the kids, childcare Christmas party, graduate, like kindergarten graduation. So that it's like that end, it's festive, but it's also just like end of year. So my calendar every single night is booked out until our Express Extravaganza Cool Story Live show, and that's yep. the 19th of December. Oh, my God. But it's fun. A lot of it is fun stuff, and so it it's going to be fine, but, yeah, it's pretty. I am having. I am not having the monk mode festive period. Nobody thought, thought that I was, was going, going to happen, to. just for the record. <laughs> no, no, no. You did doubt me, and I was offended that you doubted me, but you were right. <laughs> yeah. Well, what I invited you to that you couldn't come to, um, I'm really excited to see. I'm going to, like, a special early screening of Poor Things, the weird new film with Emma Stone. And I've just, I've only just sort of found this summary, two sentence summary, brought back to life by an unorthodox scientist. A young woman runs off with a lawyer on a whirlwind adventure across the continents. Free from the prejudices of her times, she grows steadfast in her purpose to stand for equality and liberation. I have no idea what it's actually about. Yeah. I booked what does that yeah, mean? It doesn't mean anything. I booked tickets based on the strength of the artistic direction of the film posters. <laughs> and when you said you couldn't come with me, I was like, oh, you know, I have – I thought it would just be a good film to talk about for the show. But I've decided to try and drag my husband along because I really like it when he and I disagree on things. Remember we saw that STC play, Oil, and I was, like, loving it and he was hating it. And as an intellectual and artistic exercise, I really like disagreeing with him and being forced to articulate why. Yeah, I've been looking forward to seeing him and, ask, and asking him exactly what was so shit about that show. <laughs> oh, I should say, too, though, two of my friends went to see it because I – told them how good it was and raved about it and they didn't like it. Oh, really? Well, I was like, sorry, do you want a refund from me? You've got the win on the Chapel Roan yes. recommendation. Yes. And you've got the L on the live theatre recommendation. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, anyway, well, whatever. Well, I can't wait to hear about it next week and your disagreement with your husband. You've been listening to Cool Story, produced by the giggly Sam Devonport. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's beautiful, Sam. You hear laughing in the background. We record on Gadigal Country. Sovereignty was never ceded. And you can also find us on Instagram at Cool Story Free Friday. Want to hear a cool story? Get it wherever you get your podcasts.